What's up, everybody, and welcome back. And to the new listeners that might be joining the community for the first time, hey, glad to have you, and hopefully you'll stay a while. Now, today I have a very uh, special episode, this very unique interview. Uh, But before we get started, I want everyone to just close your eyes for a second and think your wildest dream, a dream that you've never seen before, a dream that you don't know anyone to have ever accomplished it. You have no mentors that have done it. Now open your eyes and go conquer that dream. That's exactly what Dr. Deborah Hyde did as she completed medical school, entered into a surgical training program for neurosurgery, having never seen another African-American female complete a neurosurgery training program. So let's jump into this episode to hear her story from a little girl throughout her career of accomplishing something that she'd never seen before. Without further ado, let's go. All right, so welcome back to another episode, and we have a very special guest here today, uh, Dr. Deborah Hyde, who is one of the earliest neurosurgeons uh, in the United States to practice as an African-American female. So it is with great honor and pleasure to have you here with me today, and I cannot wait to hear your story. So thank you for coming on to the podcast with me. My pleasure. Absolutely. So just in brief introduction, I want you to tell your own story, but just in brief introduction, um, Dr. Hyde was born in Laurel, Mississippi in 1949. Um, She graduated from Oak Park High School and then went on to further her education at Tougaloo College. Um, After that, she went on to Cleveland State uh, for graduate school before getting accepted into medical school. And she went to medical school at Case Western uh, Reserve medical school and that's also where she continued with her neurosurgery training Um, so i'm going to stop there and i want to start hearing from you so tell me about growing up in laurel mississippi in the early 1950s uh, what sparked you to say hey i want to go to college number one and think about being a doctor at some point well now i never considered uh, medicine as a career choice until actually in being in graduate school. But growing up, even though my family was uneducated, they were very smart, hardworking. So getting an education was key and was a focus uh, for all of us. Um, Mississippi in general, Laurel, you know, that those were days when we rode the back of the bus and I had to go through the back door of clinics and restaurants and use water fountains, mark color. Um, so, you know, that's the meaning, uh, even to a child, that's the meaning, uh, but that was the existence, but I was, because of my family with such a rich, proud heritage, um, I, I was just always, uh, encouraged to, uh, be strong, to get an education, uh, and to, uh, be a high achiever, um. My my grandfather, uh, who was almost illiterate, was responsible for so many people in our neighborhood becoming registered voters. Uh, I, as an elementary student, I used to write letters for people to get their social security um, checks started. Um, 
it's just that they were, my family was just very focused on community and uh, helping. My grandfather was smart enough to buy land. So he grew vegetables and watermelons and all that good stuff. And, and I've, so I've, I never, I was never hungry. Uh, and quite honestly, I didn't really know I was poor until I got to Tougaloo and realized, oh, a lot of people really live a lot better than I, I did. Um, so that's what growing up in Laurel was like. Sure, sure. So would you would you say that that's probably where you got your work ethic from growing up um, in Laurel, where you had to, were you working on the farm with your grandfather or were you protected oh, no. from that? Did you just have to go to school or? I never worked on the, on the farm. Okay. I always had my head in the book and it was the policy of at the house. If this child wants to read a book, let her read. Uh, I'll never forget in sixth grade, well, starting in fifth grade, I, I wanted a book of world book encyclopedia. And, uh, and, you know, somehow my mother made a way to do that, even though I don't know, she had to pay something every month. And I know mm. she had to sacrifice a lot to get that for me. But they were proud of the fact that I, I was a good student and that I wanted to study. And so I really, that's how why I don't know how to cook <laughs> <laughs> and do all those things, perhaps. Well, maybe that's my excuse, but uh, no, the, the, it was just everybody knew. If she's reading, if she's studying, don't bother her. So they saw something, a gift in you early on, and it seems like everyone in the community or in your family nurtured that gift. They did. Absolutely. They certainly did. And I achieved. I, was, I, I left Nora Davis Elementary School as valedictorian of my sixth grade class. I finished uh, Oak Park as valedictorian of my class. I graduated with honors from Tougaloo. Um, and then at, and at medical school, I graduated uh, and was elected to Alpha Omega Alpha Medical Honorary Society, which, uh, as you know, elects the top 25% of every class. Absolutely. So I, I, but I worked hard. It didn't you know, necessarily come easy, but I, I worked very hard Absolutely. to achieve. So you mentioned when you got to Tougaloo, you started to see, okay, maybe I am poor. You know, there are people coming from different walks of life. Um, I'd imagine you'll probably run into professional children of professionals, children of other um, doctors and lawyers and things of that nature. Um, but at the same time, you are still able to achieve at that a higher level, maybe than some of them. Yeah, what did I that? Did. Yeah. What did that mean when you saw that? Did it make you work harder, or or was it a driving I, force? It was just a. Uh, an eye-opening experience, uh, but interestingly, you know, I was very popular. In spite of all this, that this little poor girl was—I was Miss Freshman. I was Alpha Phi Alpha uh, sweetheart for the Sphinx Club and the and the fraternity. The entire time I was at Tougaloo, and and I was Miss Tougaloo College, which was such an honor. Wow. So, uh, but I used to make all my clothes, and I was really good at that. So I I didn't. I didn't look poor. <laughs> so where did you pick up that craft? Where did you pick up the craft of making your own clothes? It, well, in high school, we had home economics. Okay. And I had, oh, wonderful teachers. Um, Amaru Twina, who is the sister of Ralph Boston. Yes. I know you know who Ralph yes. is. Everybody yes. knows Ralph. <laughs> and uh, Miss Huey, Miss Twina was primarily my teacher, but that's how I learned to sew. And actually, I... 
anything I want to do, I work hard at it to achieve. So I was really a pretty good seamstress, actually. All right. And I've always been very creative working with my hands. Uh, later on, actually, even after, while working, I made jewelry and some of my jewelry was featured in Black Enterprise uh, and in uh, Essence. I had shows uh, in um, both uh, Jackson, Mississippi, and in uh, quite a few shows in Los Angeles. But I didn't really have a lot of time to do that. I would start making jewelry in the middle of the night when I'd come home from uh, all-night surgery and couldn't sleep. Right. And that's how that started. And okay. So it, it ended up coming uh well, for a while because it took up too much of my time, but I it was quite quite an adventure. So it was a hobby. <laughs> a it was hobby a hobby itself. that paid. <laughs> sure, sure, understood. All right, so let's talk about you finished at Tougaloo, but before going to Case Western, you went to Cleveland State in graduate school. Yes. And talk about that graduate school experience, and you know, you mentioned that you never thought about being a physician until you got to graduate school. Let's talk about that. Sure. Well, all of my my mentor my mentors were teachers, especially at at Oak Park and also in elementary school. And I always thought that I would teach, but I knew I didn't want to teach elementary or high school. I could see myself as a university professor. Okay. So I really thought that was probably what I would do. And because my interest was in, always in the sciences, even in elementary school and, and at Oak Park. I figured I would probably be some kind of science teacher uh, on a graduate level. But, and then actually in graduate school, because my research there was with the nervous system, uh, the professor that I chose, uh, because all no, none of the other graduate students wanted to work with him, Dr. Peter Baker, they said he was too hard, he made you work too hard. And, but that was, that challenge seemed interesting to me and I wanted to work with him. And so I dissected, uh, for my research, I dissected the mouse eye and, and did biochemical studies. And as my, for my job, I dissected the mouse brain because that was his research. And um, for my graduate thesis, a lot of my uh, work was published. I was very proud of that. Um, but he was an excellent, uh, the kind of professor you would have found at Case Western. <laughs> mm -hmm. But he was there at uh, Cleveland State University. Um, but that was, that focused my interest on the nervous system. And at that point, then I figured, well, um, yes, I'll be a university teacher. But when I decided to consider medicine, as all of these, uh, the other graduate students who were white males were going to med school, I thought, well, then I guess I could go to med school and become a neurologist. Again, medicine, uh, neurosurgery had never entered the picture until I rotated on my surgical clerkship uh, at Case Western during the second year of medical school. Okay. All right. So you got accepted into medical school. And then were you the only minority in your class coming in? Oh, or no, they... no, no. There were, remember, this is... Uh, affirmative action? Affirmative action. So had it not been for affirmative action, perhaps I would not have been able to go to Case Western Reserve because it was an expensive school. Mm -hmm. So you finished up in 19 um, from Case Western Reserve at medical school in 1977, correct? Correct. And you went right into your neurosurgery or right into your internship? Internship, okay. yes. All right. And your neurosurgery was five years training? 
Well, I, well, after my internship, actually, I did four years because you know I was not, I was not planning an academic path, okay. which would have added more time. I see. I, I see. really wanted to practice in the in the communities. Sure. So tell us what it was like to be a resident at this era in time. Now, you know, just to reference it, now there are work hours where you can't work greater than, I believe it's 80 hours of work week, um, where there's shifts and you have to have a certain amount of days between call, things of that nature. But I know that that did not exist when you were going through training. So talk to you us know. about what your training was like. Well, it, it was it was hard and it was long, long hours. I mean, I would do 36 hour shifts and, and really not have much time to even go home and shower and pay some bills or whatever. But uh, that was the way it had been done. And quite honestly, uh, I really didn't have a problem with that. I felt I learned a lot in the middle of the night. I learned a lot on those days when I might have been off because the schedule was such that I wasn't. You know, I wasn't scheduled to be on the premise. And uh, you learn the more you're exposed mm -hmm. to the craft. And maybe I'm old school, but I didn't have a problem with the schedule that I had. And it wasn't any more difficult for me than it was for, for the, the men. Um, I did my job and, and enjoyed it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it was tough, but, but it was, you know, I was working toward a goal. So when you completed in 1982, um, you went out into practice and started into a private practice, correct? Well, well actually, I, I, after interviewing all around uh, the country because the trips were free, right. um, I decided to take this job in at Guthrie Clinic, Robert Packer Hospital, right on the Pennsylvania-New York border uh, because they served 40 surrounding counties. And so there, was, there would have been a lot of surgery to and so I moved and took this job in, in an all-white community. Um, and I was the first black doctor on the staff at Guthrie Clinic. And I stayed there for five years and enjoyed it, did a lot of surgery. And it was, I, I think it was a, the right decision for me at that time. Were you welcomed into the community being the first um, African-American physician? Yeah, yeah, I was. I felt welcomed. And, you know, I was like a little celebrity in, in the newspapers and, and uh, some TV shows. And, uh, you know, it was interesting that there were times when patients would just want to touch my hair or because they had never touched anyone black before and, and that kind of things. But I made lots of friends and uh, uh, it was a good experience. So at what point did you realize, hey, I'm going to be one of the first black neurosurgeon, women neurosurgeons in the country? Well, I knew that when I was accepted, uh, uh, you know, finishing medical school. Mm -hmm. uh, and at that time, I didn't know that there was another black female until uh, in, in 82, when we both were featured in Ebony magazine and uh, we knew that each other existed and we both presented papers at uh, the NMA meeting in San Francisco that same, I think it was that same year or the next year. And uh, Alexa Kennedy was a year ahead of me. So she finished first. And I was in the second uh, black female in the country to become a neurosurgeon. I was the first in the state of California when I, when I moved to California in 1986. Uh, 
from 86 until 2018 when I retired, the end of 2018. So what was the significance of that for you, being a pioneer, being one of the first African-American women to achieve that goal or to achieve becoming a neurosurgeon? What did that mean to you? Well, it, well, I, I felt special. Um, it was an honor. Um, it, it, I was surprised that there had not been others. There certainly should have been others before us. Uh, but, I mean, it was certainly an honor to have had that distinction. Mm -hmm. And um, I know that coming out early in your practice, you discovered, or not discovered, you established the Beacon of Hope Scholarship Foundation. Will you talk to us about that? Yes. Well, my sister and I, my sister, Omiria Scott, is uh, in the House of Representatives here in Mississippi. It has been for many, many years. I always lose count, but I think it's about 20-some years. Um, we wanted... But we were brought up to believe that to whom much is given, much is required. And uh, my grandmother was just always uh, stressing how important it is to uh, be kind to other people. That that again, that you to whom much is given, much is required, and that you one, one should help other people because you know we have been helped in, in intervals by other individuals, and so we just saw that as an opportunity to help other students uh, further their education. And so what we did, we decided to give scholarships both in, uh, well, had to in Los Angeles, greater Los Angeles, because that's where I live and, and raise the funds. Uh, I had wonderful friends who helped on my uh, committee to, to raise funds for these scholarships. And uh, we gave scholarships both in Los Angeles and in Laurel, Mississippi, every single year for over 20 years. Wow, and the students cool. had to maintain a B average. They got money every single year, as long as they stayed in college and, and uh, maintained a B average. And we also actually uh, gave um, financial um, awards to students in middle school to encourage them to seek uh, higher education. So we gave them monetary awards to those who achieved. And uh, I, I think it was a, a great opportunity to help others achieve, make higher achievements, and to sort of cross that chasm in life, uh, is, which is what we should all do, try to help others. Yeah, I think you brought up some great points. Number one, not only did you give to high school students, but you gave um, monetary achievement awards to middle school students. Um, yes. You know, even to today, only about 5% of practicing physicians or 5% of medical students are African-American or black. Um, mm -hmm. You know, for orthopedic surgery, only approximately a little bit less than 2% of practicing orthopedic surgeons are black. I can imagine for neurosurgeons, it's probably less than that. Probably. Um, yeah. So, you know, in order to be able to reverse some of those trends, we have to start pipeline programs like you like what you had established, because you we can't find kids that are in medical school and say, hey, let's make you into a neurosurgeon. You have to be able to get enough qualified applicants to the table to be able to to say, OK, I want to go into medical school. So we have to really encourage our children from middle school age, it's not too early, you know, at 10, 12, 14 to start saying, hey, I want to pursue a career in medicine because the bar to achieve that is so high. 
Um, so I think that's great, great work that you did in that era area. Well, thank you. Um, now, also, um, I want to ask you, going through that training process as a neurosurgeon, you mentioned the long hours. What mental fortitude did it take to just keep pushing, to keep grinding? I'm sure it wasn't always easy. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm sure there were many tough days along the way. But what was it that always kept you moving forward? Well, I, I, was, I had a strong faith. I, I honestly believe that, that God had ordered my steps. I, I believe that I was chosen uh, to, do, to do neurosurgery. I really believe that. And it was with that reverence that I practiced, that I trained and practiced my craft. Um, prayer was always important. I never went into the operating room without prayer. On emergency cases, when there was not any time to do anything but scrub, I prayed at the sink. When there were cases that were difficult and, and planned, I'd call home and have my mother and my sister, Miriam, praying for the patients and for me. And that was just, that was just my life. Uh, it, it's hard. The, a lot of the ICU nurses would tell me often, because a neurosurgeon, you're either, you're either in the operating room or you're in the intensive care unit or step-down units. Um, and they would say, you know, it's nothing to see Dr. Hyde standing there with the chaplain praying. I mean, we don't see anybody else doing that. Prayer has always been very important in my life. And um, from, a, from the time I was a child. And that has, that was a lot of my strength. You know, God was my refuge and my strength. And having um, just so much encouragement from my my grandmother, my, my grandfather, until he passed away, and then my mother, my stepfather, my aunt and uncles. I mean, I was just so, so richly favored uh, in this life and just so blessed. Um, and I think that made the difference. I think that's why my career was, was a successful one, was but because I put God first. Absolutely. And, and I really, I sincerely tried to live a life deserving of the many blessings that I had. That's a beautiful story. You know, I was the first person in my family to go to medical school. Uh, mm -hmm. My mother was the first person in her family to go to college. And my grandfather, who was born, he's five months older than Dr. Martin Luther King and did a lot of um, community activism and was a huge part of the civil rights movement. You know, he was a farmer and didn't get to go to school hardly at all, end up getting his GED in his 60s. But I know the sense of pride that he has when he can call me doctor now, because he knows that it's basically his dream. You know, mm -hmm. the saying that we are our ancestors' wildest dreams is very accurate. So I can imagine the sense of pride, like you mentioned, your, your grandfather was pretty much illiterate. However, they saw the importance of pushing you when they saw that you had a gift. So I can only imagine the sense of pride that when you became a neurosurgeon from Laurel, Mississippi, that your family had. Oh, they were very proud of me. Yes. Absolutely. Um, so you practiced for almost 30 years, huh? Um, 30, no, 30. Wasn't it 38? 38 years, yeah. Yeah. So, and I wasn't ready to quit now. Yeah. So... <laughs> This just kind of puts it in reference. I was born in 1980, 
and you started practicing in 1982. So yeah, 38 years of practice. So at what point did you decide, okay, it is time for me to step back and put down the knife? Well, honestly, I, I was forced to make that decision. Now I purchased, a, I always wanted to move back to Laurel. I felt an obligation somehow. I, I oftentimes can explain that, but I felt an obligation to, to my grandparents, to, to my parents, to come back and, and represent them. Now, I just felt that, and um, and I continued to feel that way. I bought a house here in Laurel in 2015, but I was not ready to to retire. I really had planned to to work at least 40 years, uh, but uh, actually, I had I had a fall and developed some instability in my spine that ended up requiring surgery. And it, uh, it it didn't work as well as it should have, and so I then that's the only reason I I quit my practice at the end of uh, 2018. My health just it it was just too difficult for me to go back to the operating room. Sure, sure. Um, so you received many awards. I saw that you received award and been presented award at the White House and many awards during your career. You've received honorary doctorates from both. Tougaloo and from Case Western. I had an honorary degree from Tougaloo. Oh, Tougaloo. Yes, what happened at Case, I was chosen alumnus of the year 40 years after I finished uh, medical school, which was quite, quite an honor. Uh, uh, I was very proud to receive that. And, um, you know, I was, um, I went to, when I went, the trip to the White House was with uh, National Council of Negro Women. And it, that was quite an honor. And then we were given an award uh, while doing that weekend by uh, Oprah Winfrey, which was quite an, uh, an experience and an honor. Uh, but I was featured in a book edited by, uh, uh, what is his name? Philip Berman, I think it was. And there were all these distinguished people in there. I mean, Dalai Lama, uh, Ben Spox, uh, I mean, Jane Goodall, all these famous people, and me. <laughs> I, I was the only black featured and the youngest person featured. And I, I had, there had been quite a bit of publicity um, about me. Like I said, uh, Ebony did that one story on us, and then they did another story, a second story, uh, follow-up. I can't remember what year, but... Um, until, so I had a lot of publicity, and, you know... What can I say? It was it was quite an honor. Um, I think it was well earned, well deserved. So, out of all the things that you you know, you received a lot of honors from different organizations and groups. But what do you want your legacy to be? That it was important to me to achieve, and but in in achieving a higher education and notoriety, to, to learn, my grandmother used to always say, learn to uh, walk with kings but never lose the common touch. So it was important to me to always be this little nappy-headed girl from Laurel, Mississippi, mm -hmm. and, uh, and what that means to me. Mm -hmm. and, and that I have done. And um, I, have, uh, I have never taken for granted how richly favored I have been in this life. Um, 
how blessed I have been, how blessed I was to have been born into the family that I, that I was, uh, because I had riches far more than money growing up with my family. So I just, uh, that I, I represent, to me, I represent, I represent kindness and, and caring and um, wanting to, to treat other people the way I want to be treated, uh, treating other people the way I want to be treated and um, keeping God at the center of my life. Um, I mean, I just I don't know what else to say. Um, I just just trying to be deserving of of good blessings, rich blessings. Absolutely. Well, you know, you mentioned two words, kindness and caring. And number one, that's something that us as surgeons, those are two words that are not often affiliated with surgeons, kindness and caring. And I imagine, especially in neurosurgery, where it's so intense all the time, that kindness and caring attitude, I'm sure, you know, made you stand out throughout your it, career. It, it did, and I was often told that. Yes, ma'am. And, and much appreciated that. All right. So, on time out with the sports doctor, this is your final time out. So, this, I don't know if you can read my shirt. I'm going to show you. So, it says, I am, black. I, I am black history in the making. So, this is actually a line from Target. Um, and they have these shirts that Target's doing for Black History Month. And they have a lot of different shirts. So for, you know, I want to ask you that same question. What does it mean for you to hear that you are Black history in the making? I'm proud. Uh, I'm honored. And, and I think I do deserve that to some degree. I'd like to be an inspiration to uh, other minorities. I'd like to be an inspiration to anybody, you know. Any, any young person striving to better their lives for, and, by, and I think education is the key to that. Certainly is the first key to success because you, you just need a good education to be able to go into any area. Um, well, most, most, mostly any area, certainly. Understood. Um, so, I mean, that's, and I've, I'm trying to live a life deserving of, of that title. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Well, thank you very much. You were wonderful. <laughs> I cannot believe you are nervous about this. I've been nervous all day to sit down and speak with you um, because you are the legend. I'm just getting started. And I really appreciate you uh, sharing your time, sharing your story, sharing your truth with us um, because it's a beautiful story and it's a story of overcoming. It's a story of generations of achievement. You know, it's a story of us continuing to carry the torch for our ancestors. So I really appreciate you sharing your story with me. And I can't wait for this to be able for other people to be able to hear it. Oh, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to, to sit with you. Thank you for your continued support with this podcast. A five-star review would be greatly appreciated. Subscribe to this podcast so you can continue to get the updated information and new episodes. Thank you.